Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a non-profit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Since 2004, Stuart Boren has served as a special investigator for uh, rock reconstruction, acting as a taxpayer's watchdog, overseeing over $60 billion of U.S. funds in Iraq. He's made over 30 trips to the country, managed audits, inspections of taxpayer funds going towards Iraq reconstruction, and he issues reports on that reconstruction to Congress. Over the past nine years, his work has yielded over $1.8 billion in financial benefits to the United States government. He's received many awards, most notably the Gaston Gianni Better Government Award in 2006 for demonstrating integrity, determination, and courage. He's received the David Walker Excellent Award in Federal Government Performance and Accountability Award in 2010. His past career includes accomplishments, uh, which are many, including work in law, military, and the government. And in the military, he is a veteran, having served four years as an intelligence officer in the U.S. Air Force. He was a briefing attorney for the uh, Texas Supreme Court for Justice Raul Gonzalez and later assistant attorney general of Texas. He's held a variety of positions with President George W. Bush's staff during his first 10 years as governor during the 2000 presidential election. He served on Bush's legal term team handling the post-election litigation in Florida, and he later served as Deputy Assistant to the President, Deputy Staff Secretary, Special Assistant to the President, and Associate Counsel until 2003. Please join me in welcoming Stuart Bowen. Thank you. Thanks very much, Perry. Uh, what Perry didn't tell you was he and I met in Iraq. Uh, in the Republican Palace uh, when he was deployed. So thanks, Perry, for your service uh, in Iraq. Uh, so many uh, guardsmen, so many reservists uh, played a crucial role uh, in our mission over there. An unprecedented role, by the way. This is something that had really never occurred in our history. Guardsmen and reservists serving time after time uh, in Iraq. Uh, many losing their lives. Indeed, uh, the brother-in-law of, 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 of Justice Don Willett, who I think will be Chief Justice someday, uh, for whom I was best man at his wedding, I'm sorry to say, lost his life uh, down in, in Hilla, 2005, a place I've been to a lot. He was a reservist, serving as a public affairs officer uh, who uh, gave is all for this cause. And so let me start by saying that's the context of my remarks tonight is, is, uh, and, and, and is the, the epigraph to, to this report points out, a uh, quotation from a, a singer who's a friend of mine from Canada, you know, each one loss is everyone's loss. And, and that, you know, the loss in, in blood is greater than loss in treasure. My focus was treasure. But the sacrifice of so many in Iraq is what I always remembered. Each of my 35 trips, and I still remember, I'll make one more coming up, 
and before I'm done at the end of September. Uh, so I want to put that in context. That's an important context to keep in mind. The sacrifice, the treasure, but yes, blood uh, in Iraq over the last 10 years. Uh, I also want to say thank you to Gordon England, Deputy Secretary of Defense, uh, who was the single most uh, emphatic supporter of my work in Iraq. Uh, I, I feel like I'm here at another one of our briefings, Gordon. You know, every quarter I came in after my trips to Iraq, after issuing our Sigur Corley reports about the challenges, and, and, and Gordon didn't, didn't say, why are you doing this? He said, how can I help? How can I help you help our mission get better? And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be here with you, my friend, and to thank you publicly for, for first your great service as Secretary of the Navy, uh, for, as, a, as, a, as, a, uh, as the Deputy Secretary of Defense, and a long career serving our country uh, in the public and private sector. And, and, um, and, and if you want to deliver an afterword after my remarks, I, please come on up because I, I, I want you to. Gordon, Gordon knows what happens, and he understands. Uh, he's got a background in auditing and oversight as well uh, that's, that's extraordinary. So thank you for being here tonight, Gordon. Uh, you have in your hands uh, our last major report, Learning from Iraq. And, and, uh, and that's kind of the context, uh, given the sober introduction I just offered you, that I want to present uh, my remarks tonight. Uh, uh, that is, learning from Iraq, looking forward. How do we reform our system so that we can improve how the United States performs in future stabilization and reconstruction operations? They will come again. They might come again soon. It could be in Syria, Somalia, Yemen, the DRC, Pakistan. All of these are fragile states in this region that could move to failure and could require our support. Are we better off than we were 10 years ago? Are we ready to engage in an interagency fashion to execute effectively a stabilization and reconstruction operation if called upon, if the national command authorities were to choose to do such? The answer is no. Why? Because we, we have not learned from Iraq sufficiently to improve our approach to planning, executing, oversee stabilization and reconstruction operations. I've been the taxpayer's watchdog in Iraq for nine years. I'll be done at the end of September, but not before we catch a few more crooks and convict them. When we're done, it'll be about 105, that'll, most of whom have gone to prison. And, you know, this has been a tough job, but, but there are uh, times when it, I really feel good about what I'm doing, and, and especially when I get an email from the Justice Department about another conviction of people that we've caught tracking them down. Because they took your money. And, and I've helped make them pay the price. Learning from Iraq has seven chapters. And then it concludes with seven lessons. And the lessons are key as we look forward. But let me go through a little bit uh, on each chapter and give you a sense about what we learned from Iraq, about what we did at Sigur. Oh, the first chapter is called Oversight in a War Zone. And it, and it, and it was unprecedented in that regard. Uh, I've talked about the loss that, that we suffered as a nation there, but I suffered it as an agency as well. On, on uh, March 24, 2008, uh, a rocket came in to the Greenville and hit a trailer at the embassy. And in that trailer 
was a man named Paul Converse, 50 years old, working for me as an auditor. That rocket took his life. Now, I'll never forget the phone call that I got from my chief of staff in Iraq telling me that this had happened and then the phone call I made to his parents in Corvallis, Oregon, and then the trip out to Corvallis to talk to him and to console them. And for them to console me, as it turned out, uh, that's what oversight in a war zone was all about. I had five wounded as well uh, in, in, in uh, Iraq by incoming fire. But our oversight produced results. Didn't just take hits, and, and 390 audits document them. They're available on our website, www.sigger.mil. And they produced $1.6 billion in financial benefits. Uh, we've obtained, as of today, 88 convictions. We'll get about 15 to 20 more before we're done. $300 million recovered from those investigations at a cost of $25 million a year. So we operated at a profit as a government entity, another rare event uh, in, in our system of government. Uh, the, the, I'm proud of my auditors, inspectors, investigators who worked for me over the past nine years, and, and I was honored to go to Iraq 35 times during that span. One more trip and make it 36 before I'm done at the end of September. And uh, they deserve the credit for those numbers I just provided you, not me. I gave the direction, I developed the plan, they did the work, and it made a difference. Chapter 2 is called, What Happened and to What Effect? Uh, and that's a fair question to ask. Occam's Razor is an analytical tool I'm fond of quoting, and it just means, you know, ask the question, the, 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 um, the immediate simple answer is probably the right one, and this, that, that has to do with the whole report, you know, how do we fix what we're doing, but, but in order to get to that answer, you have to know what happened and to what effect. And I did that in Chapter 2, as Chapter 2 documents, 44 interviews with Iraqi leaders, Prime Ministers Maliki, Joffrey, Alawi, uh, various other leaders across the spectrum over time, and also 17 senior U.S. leaders. General Petraeus' interview, I commend to you, he really, as always, nails it in his analysis. But also General Austin, General Odierno, Ambassador Crocker, my friend, uh, had some nice things to say, and... Uh, he is a supporter of the, and let me just throw this in, of the core recommendation to create the U.S. Office for Contingency Operations, uh, which is the reform measure that I'm going to talk about in a minute. Uh, but the man who was at the center of the, of the diplomatic battle agrees with the core proposal of this report, Ryan Crocker. But talk to all the ambassadors, all the generals, and leadership in the Pentagon and, and state that, including Secretary Panetta, to, and ask them two questions. What do you think about the effects of the expenditure of $60 billion for Iraq's reconstruction? And what's your biggest lesson learned? A lot of interesting answers to that, but the other 12 interviews in that collection came from the Hill. And I like Claire McCaskill's point about what happened with regard to the interagency. How did it work? Her metaphor, she described it, she said, with regard to state and defense, uh, their coordination amounted to a circular firing squad. Vivid, but apt. Tough, uh, but a call to reform. Uh, not a condemnation of the people that did it, but a, re a, a comment upon the reality of the condition of our current system, which does not integrate well. You know, and, and let me 
posit these two words for you to keep in mind and take away from my talk this evening. Coordination, integration. Coordination is what we relied on in Iraq. Coordination is an agreement between two people or a group to accomplish something. And it lasts as long as that agreement endures. In, in a war zone, it's tough to coordinate. Integration is about how you operate together if you planned well, if you trained well, if you connected well, before the operation begins. Integration is where we need to be. Coordination is where we are today. Chapter 3 is titled Nation Rebuilding by Adhocracy. And Adhocracy is a fair description of what unfolded in Iraq regarding the governance and oversight of the reconstruction program. Acronymic Adhocracy is how I've described it. A, you know, the Coalition Provisional Authority was followed by the Iraq Reconstruction Management Office, was followed by the Iraq Transition Assistance Office, which was followed by the which, was which is connected to the Project Management Office or the Project Contracting Office, all of these are gone. They were temporary entities ad hoc, thus. Acronyms, CPA, IRMO, ITAL, ISPO, PCO, PMO, Liz, you've heard them all. Uh, that did their best, but did their best in the context not of a nine-year rebuilding program, but of nine one-year rebuilding because of the nature of the personnel turnover that, that was inherent in the system. There wasn't anybody, there was no FEMA, international FEMA, to send to do this mission from start to finish. That's kind of what USARPA would be. Chapter 3 lays that out in painful detail, um, but for a purpose, to point to the reform I've been pointing to. How much money was spent as taxpayers? That's probably your first question, so uh, maybe that should have been Chapter 1 for you. A lot, $60 billion, uh, through five major funds. The Iraq Relief and Reconstruction Fund, $20.86 billion. The Iraq Security Forces Fund, which was invested in the police and the army. Which, by the way, was, I think, the most successful area of expenditure. Iraq now has the, the most capable police and army it's ever had. Somewhat of an mixed blessing, as you've seen in the news over the last quarter. 20.19 billion. The Economic Support Fund, those of you at state know that that's state money, 5.13 billion spent on building capacity. It's a term of art, it's about teaching governance, teaching the government how to operate, local and central. The Commander's Emergency Response Program, invented in Iraq, not known before, uh, was about giving commanders at the local level money to spend to win hearts and minds. And when used that way at small at the small scale, worked great. It's actually a weapon in the commander's arsenal. As our audits demonstrated, when it got too big, it got out of control. And it resulted in fraud and waste and inefficiencies uh, requiring the Congress to crack down. And in fact, of our 88 convictions to date, half are military members. Most of them stole money from the SERP. This was all cash. Matter of fact, I should tell you, you'll, you'll wonder why this happened. Almost all the money that we spent in Iraq was spent in cash. It was flown over, 11 billion flown over in these flights that you, you may remember reading about in the paper, but all this SERP money was also cash taken over. So you had soldiers with duffel bag sitting next to their desk with $4 million in it, you know, and 
you know, more than they could uh, make in many lifetimes given their rate of income. And let me, let me begin by saying 99% of them were resisted that temptation, but, but 1% thought, well, it's going to be stolen by my Iraqi contract, or at least part of it anyway, and so I'm going to take some. We caught some of them. The stupid crooks we caught. I mean, usually people depositing it somewhere and we catch them. That's smart ones we did. Uh, but the, my point is, SERP was a good program, but it, it needed better controls. Some of them, those controls came into place over time. Um, but before we engage in the next stabilization and reconstruction operation, and before we give $4.1 billion to commanders out in the field, wherever that might be, be sure you got training done. Be sure you have controls in place. Be sure you have someone watching that 1% that I've been talking about. Where the money went? It's a great question. How did we spend all that money? Uh, we spent most of it on security, $26 billion. And you know, while there was some waste in that, and there were some shortfalls and struggles along the way that were, I think, Iraqi-driven because of the militias and the sectarian rivalries and the, the political challenges and, and a culture that had been conditioned to be corrupt by Saddam Hussein for over 25 years. Nevertheless, that Ministry of Interior and that Ministry of Defense did a lot better and is much better off today than ever before. $26 billion is a lot of money, uh, but I think spent well, for the most part, in that sector. Electricity, $5.36 billion. Uh, some waste there, but today Iraq has more power on its grid than ever before. So I think you can argue that the contribution the United States taxpayers made to the recovery of Iraq's electricity sector, which was destroyed in the war, by the way, down to less than 500 megawatts after post-war, post uh, was largely well spent and achieved its outcome. Water and sanita sanitation, $2.7 billion. Unfortunately, that's a mixed story. It's difficult to track, you know, as a, as a metric to begin with, but there are so many projects that we uncovered that were bad projects. Uh, the, the single largest project that we did, the, the Nazarita water treatment system, which I went down and visited, Ur of the Chaldees in the Bible, as Nazareth was called, and Abraham's home. They got Abraham's house there. You can go visit. That's what they said. And, uh, and it was a $300 million project that's not working today, uh, which, is, which is unfortunate for the five cities it's supposed to serve. Uh, the Fallujah wastewater treatment plant, you, you know Fallujah. Fallujah was, was the most challenging Sunni city in, in Anbar province in the west of Iraq a crucial city to win the hearts and minds. This was the biggest project in it, and it was not a success. It took eight years, three times longer than it should have, cost three times as much as serving as a third of the people. Water and sanitization, sanitation, excuse me, uh, not a success story. Oil and gas, almost two billion, uh, a mixed story. We spent uh, not as much as you might expect, you know, given that that's the key resource for Iraq. But, it, but Iraq eventually was generating its own income to reinvest, and today its budget, driven 95% by oil and gas revenue, is $120 billion. Next year it'll be over $150 billion. The next year it'll be over $200 billion. This is not a poor country. We don't need to keep giving it aid. That's your message there. Rule of law, $1.2 billion. 
a broken system. I've been talking about the security challenges, but the corruption issue is the cancer that, that I, I'm sorry to say still uh, burdens Iraq. The, the, by their own reporting, by the, the, the president of the board of Supreme Audit, their oversight, the chief oversight entity, the, he told me last year that corruption cost Iraq 20 to 40 billion dollars. Mind-boggling sum. Which means a few people at the top are getting very wealthy from, from this criminal conduct. And, and I think it's somewhat connected to a disjunct within the system that exists there today as a result of the changes that have been effectuated over the last 10 years. We brought electoral democracy. There have been five elections, six now, six elections, uh, relatively successful, uh, other than the 2010 one, which was highly problematic. That system of electoral democracy overlays a command economy. The oil and gas sector is owned by the state. I, I remember asking Deputy Prime Minister Sharastani, who's in charge of the energy, I said, the path out of corruption is privatization. You've got to shed some light in the presumption. He said, impossible, Mr. Bowen. I said, why? He said, the Constitution prohibits it. And I said, in what way? He said, it says the oil and gas belongs to the people of Iraq, and we are the people of Iraq. <laughs> I had nothing to say at that juncture, but other than to realize privately that this is a burden they're going to have to deal with for a while until they see their way out of it. Other countries have. Mexico has. Mexico has a similar provision, but it's, it's beginning to see its way out of it. Uh, but until they won't capture, they won't conquer this corruption problem until they begin to recognize that the privatization of the oil and gas sector, their only revenue producing sector, by the way, they, they're, they're a net importer of food still, a fertile crescent, uh, is, uh, is the path out of corruption. And, and the corruption is the cancer that, that, that robs most of the population of hope and keeps them, a third of them, unemployed. Other money spent, governance, $7.4 billion, a lot of money. That, that's all about helping rebuild that government of Iraq, which was completely wiped out in 2003. Capacity development, working at the local level through the Provincial Reconstruction Team Program, $2.2 billion. Public services, $2.5 billion. Humanitarian relief and civil society, uh, about $2 billion. Chapter 6 is Pathways Towards Reform, and that just uh, documents how the United States did respond to what happened in Iraq and how it tried to implement changes through presidential orders and how those changes didn't meet the need. They didn't affect the change that, we're gonna, that I'm going to talk about in a minute. And, and, and that I'm going to talk about now, not in a minute, and that is to implement a reform that creates an office that is a center of gravity within our government for the planning, the execution, and the oversight of stabilization and reconstruction operations. And that we don't have. Right now we have five different entities scattered across a variety of agencies that are charged with the responsibility for carrying out stabilization and reconstruction operations. And they don't do a very good job of it, not because of ill will, but because of lack of integration. Coordination won't cut it. Integration will, as I've said. 
and, and this is the key. Creating the U.S. Office of Contingency Operations would do it. Congressman Steve Stockman of Texas has introduced a bill to establish it, supported by Peter Welch of Vermont. Couldn't have a further uh, spread on the spectrum. Uh, and, and I think a variety of members are beginning to sign up and agree with this idea. So there is hope uh, to learn the lessons from Iraq, to move it forward. Other lessons, there were seven that are reported in, in your book. Uh, second one is ensure full post-country engagement before you engage in program and project selection. This is what the Iraqis told me, Maliki et al said that they weren't talked to enough at the beginning of the program by the United States about what the country needed. Instead, as Deputy Secretary of State Bill Burns told me in my interview, we went to Iraq and tried to do it all and do it our own way. A key lesson to absorb for future operations. Defer to the host country, defer to the country that is the subject of the operation. Third, establish uniform contracting, personnel, and information management systems. That's what USOCA would do. It's, it's impossible to do in the current bureaucracy because it's so stratified and diffused across a variety of agencies. Fourth, require robust oversight of stabilization and reconstruction operations. That is the secret story. You know, when, when you are there, uh, you deter conduct. As, as Perry was telling me earlier, you know, at, they used to say, oh, SIGR's coming. We get, better get ready. That's called deterrence. You know, it gets people focused on what getting ready is about, which is getting right, with how you look out for your tax dollars. That's what it's all about. But it ought not to be reactive, right? It ought to be preparatory. It ought to be something that we're doing before we begin. And that, that demands oversight from the beginning. I, my office wasn't created until a year almost into the program. Too late. Too much had happened. Preserve and refine programs that worked in Iraq. I've talked about CERP. It did work when well-managed. It is a weapon in the commander's arsenal. It is a way to win hearts and minds locally. Uh, and it ought to be developed, inculcated, and it ought to have a home. Uh, my, my chief criticism of CERP was that it didn't have a program office at the Pentagon. Uh, so the Congress ended up turning out to be its program office, saying, hey, no more million-dollar projects, you know, after reading our audits. That, that's not how to run a program. Uh, plan well early. Train well beforehand. Be sure the people that go out there are, have controls in place to prevent the kind of death that I've told you about this evening. Provincial reconstruction teams also, kind of a laboratory for the reform I've been talking about, developed in Iraq. Civilians, military, working together at the local level to build capacity helping projects get done, helping governments get better, helping them to learn the ways of democracy. When well-led, worked beautifully. When not, they were just stasis on the ground. The key is training. Again, they, they just sort of stood up, people pushed out, and told to do the best they can, given some resources. That's not enough. That's not the kind of preparation necessary to ensure victory uh, at every turn. Uh, and finally, plan. And that sounds like a simplistic idea, uh, but, but really what I mean is plan comprehensively so that you have a plan B that you can do. In Iraq, we did have a plan. Now, people say, hey, there was no planning for Iraq. That's not true. 
There was a plan. The plan was liberate and leave. Secretary Rumsfeld, when I interviewed him, said that was what he felt the plan continued to be in 2003, but the plan changed in April of 2003 from liberate and leave to occupy and rebuild. UN Security Council Res Resolution 1483 documented that fact when it authorized the Coalition Provisional Authority as the governance of Iraq and its access to Iraqi money through the Development Fund of Iraq, which the Iraqis are still mad about. They were mad about it all of 2003. They were mad about it throughout 2004, and ultimately their anger uh, helped contribute to the decision in November of 2003 to the president, president Bush's decision to end the CPA in June of 2004. The, the point I'm making is that the plan that we shifted to from liberate and leave to occupy and rebuild was, a, was shifting to a plan that we didn't have the inherent capacity within our government to execute effectively. And thus the Coalition Provisional Authority, not, not commenting on their intent or their motivations, but commenting on the reality of what they could do, sought to do something that, that our system didn't have the capacity to execute. And that led to shortfalls that put us behind. Contracting, for example, we, the money that the Polish Provision Authority wanted to spend, the U.S. money, didn't get contracted until a month before it was over. And then once Ambassador Negroponte came in, he froze all of that, and a complete reorientation of the mission occurred. And indeed, I've described the Iraq program, I think, accurately as nine one-year rebuilding programs rather than a nine-year program. And, and that's... That, that's, a, that's led to, uh, that made it nine years long, I guess, from one, in one perspective, and led to the fraud waste and abuse that we've talked about. The point I continue to make, though, is how do you get to that capacity to ensure that Plan B can be done? And the answer is through reform. And the only kind of reform that can make this happen is from the Hill, because, it, because we've tried it in the agencies through presidential executive orders, and the agencies haven't been able to make it happen. There was an office created called the Coordinator for Reconstruction and Stabilization at State. It didn't succeed. And last week, I was in front of the House Committee on Foreign Affairs testifying on this report and on this point with Ambassador John Herbst, who led that office for three years. What, what were his words from the table? Create USOCO. We've learned our lesson, as far as he's concerned, that you can't put it within state, you can't put it within aid, 83% contracted out entity. You can't put it in defense because that's not workable. You have to have a civilian lead in these areas. Where do you put it? You pull it out so that you don't suffer the biases. And that's what USOCA would do. So it would be an entity that would report, like I do, the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense with a line to the National Security Advisor, because that's where policy comes from, the National Security Council. And it would be cheap. It would be budget neutral. It would not be bureaucratic and it would do the kind of planning that we need to do to ensure success. Why, why is this important? Why shouldn't our policy just be no more rocks in Afghanistan? I feel that sense very much, having lived one of those missions very closely. But that's a hope. It's not a, an approach to a strategy, a national security strategy, a national security architecture that can promote victory in the future. And and so I think that the, the Congress will continue to consider this. 
you know, I, I, there is movement in the Senate to introduce a parallel bill that would promote and advance and execute USOCO as a solution. And, and, that, and if I may close on that optimistic note, reform is the key to success personally, professionally, governmentally, right? You've got to learn from your mistakes and improve and move forward to ensure that you don't repeat them. We're not that much better off today than we were 10 years ago. If, if the demands for such an operation came and hit us in the face in Syria, which could happen, uh, we, I couldn't promise significantly better results based on what I know about our system. If USOCA was created and given the power to plan, execute, and oversee these kinds of operations, I could make that promise. I could say that we would do better. I could say that we're better off. So with that, uh, th thank you for your patience. Uh, on uh, my comments tonight and happy to take your questions. Gordon, you want to offer uh, a couple of words, rejoinder? Okay, questions first and then Gordon will tell me. Gordon knows. Gordon was the leader in all of this. We have, we have a microphone tonight on both sides, but I'd like to ask the first question. Give us a sense of who the stakeholders were when the policy changed from liberate and leave to occupy and rebuild. Uh, Great question, uh, and one that I can't fully answer uh, in the sense that I don't have the answer for the reasons for it, but the stakeholders uh, were the President, Secretary of Defense, uh, uh, the Secretary of State, but ultimately at the White House, the National Security Council. The, the issue in April, because it was just, Jay Garner got on the ground April 7th, Jerry Bremer was called April 12th. Uh, Jay Garner was in Kurdistan when he got a phone call and said, thanks for your service. He was in Kurdistan arranging for elections, which was the plan, to do elections and, and have an Iraqi sovereign in place pretty quickly. In other words, do Afghanistan. The, the situation on the ground, and you know, Gordon can, can probably amplify better than, than I can operationally, um, was that the ministries were effectively destroyed. Uh, the looting was rampant. And the country was in much worse condition than, than planners had anticipated. So those three things contributed to decision by the coalition, not just the United States, another stakeholder, the UK, significant one. Not necessarily in concert with this decision. Uh, to pursue a different path. That path was to, to become the government of Iraq for, at the time, we thought two to three years. That was, that was the initial sense about the Coalition Division Authority. Uh, the Iraqis were outraged, still mad about it today. The Iraqis were not a stakeholder in this mix. And perhaps, you know, that, that teases out, uh, I think, the key points in this in your question and in what happens. I think historians are going to have to dig into, you know, exactly the elements of April 2003 to, to penetrate uh, the exact decision-making, because I don't have a complete answer on it, uh, other than to say just what I've said, that the conditions were worse than we expected, things were declining fast, security was collapsing, not yet quite what it was by September, and then thereafter. Uh, but 
but it's a, it's a key question, probably the most important question to continue to examine and answer about Iraq. It, it, because the bureaucracies are entrenched. There has to be a direction, and that direction can only come from the Congress. If it's not you, Soko, I'm open to anything else that achieves the same outcome. Thank you all for coming, and thanks to the World Affairs Council and GM for having me. Appreciate it. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.